This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the North Face and its new Apex Flex GTX. A Gore-Tex jacket so soft, dry, and comfortable, it might actually change the way you think about the rain. Here on the podcast, we're looking at people who see rain differently than most. Today, it's kids. Specifically, kids playing in rain puddles. Now, most of us look at a puddle and just see innocent fun. But if you talk to a developmental psychologist, a puddle is a completely new experience for kids. It's glossy and glassy and wet, and it reacts to whatever you're doing. So a puddle is a really exciting thing. That's Dr. Sue Lantan, a professor at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. She describes kids as little explorers and says puddles are like terra incognita. Within a puddle, she says, you have a chance to try and figure out how the world works. So you put your finger in it, you cause ripples, you um, splash around your hands, and it causes the water to move. So they're figuring out laws of physics. They're figuring out cause and effect. They're figuring out things about how materials act in the world. But kids aren't just learning from the puddles. They're also learning from adults. And there are two basic messages you can send. Puddles are fun, or if you're afraid to get wet, puddles are scary. Dr. Tan says you can actually learn a lot about the adults in a kid's life by watching the kid interact with a puddle. Yes, puddles are not trivial things. So I just got to ask, do you play in puddles or are you too afraid of getting wet? Because if it's the latter, I know a jacket that could help. It was a day that was easy to forecast. The ingredients were all there. High wind shear, off the charts, instability in the atmosphere. It was just, how bad was it going to get? And everyone was pinpointing central Oklahoma was where it was going to play out. My first clear memory, I think, of that day was when we pulled off to the side of the road out in the middle of nowhere, and we had these huge wind turbines just spinning, and it was against this very ominous sky. We were just holding our breath and waiting. It felt like a beast. I mean, honestly, it really did. It was a, it was a monster. It's probably not going to help anybody to think of tornadoes as monsters, but it sure felt like one. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is Giant. continues on the ground it is heading directly into El Reno you folks this El Reno is the story of the largest tornado ever seen and the story of what happened to the people who saw it from up close it was May 31st 2013 near El Reno Oklahoma at its peak the tornado stretched 2.6 miles wide and spun at over 200 miles an hour for a full 40 minutes it scorched the countryside tracing a 16-mile-long path along Highway 40 
and narrowly avoiding the heart of the city. It wasn't the most destructive tornado ever, or the most deadly. But among storm chasers, the folks who try to get as close to tornadoes as they can, everyone remembers El Reno. El Reno changed everything. Robbie Carver has spent the last few weeks talking with a few of the storm chasers who were there. They're a collection of thrill-seekers, meteorologists, and weather geeks. And for them, part of the rush is that we still don't fully understand tornadoes. They can still surprise us. And they do. Here's Robbie. At its most basic, a tornado is just a rotating column of air. You can only see it because of the water vapor, dust, and debris that it sucks into itself as it spins. And no one knows for certain why a tornado will form in one thunderstorm and not another. When it comes down to it, most people don't really understand why tornadoes form at all. And even scientists don't know if a tornado on the ground will die out immediately or linger and wreak havoc. But despite the lack of definitive answers, there are clues and patterns and just enough meteorological hints about when tornadoes will form that the term storm chasing is actually a bit of a misnomer. These guys are storm hunting. They're not just hoping to be in the right place at the right time. They're looking at weather reports and evaluating stuff like thermodynamics, cloud rotation, and wind shear, tracking signs across the sky. And that part is fun. It's the game. Can you predict where you need to be to see a tornado? That's Mike Bettis, on-camera meteorologist for the Weather Channel. When dangerous weather hits, it's his job to bring you the images up close. The most impressive funnel of the supercell so far. But it's more than a job. Different tornadoes have different personalities. And part of the thrill is seeing how each new one will surprise you. More of a rope-like shape right toward the ground here, but you can definitely Like the time he was in Grange, Wyoming watching a tornado descend from the sky and evolve into what's called a stovepipe, when the top detached from the base of the cloud and looked over at him. That is unbelievable. Look at that. You can look right into the And it almost was like it took a bow right at me. And you could literally see right down into the tornado from the top down. Outer funnel and an inner funnel. What exactly is going on here? That is beautiful. Just like it blew my mind. I was pinching myself. Coming toward us and lowering. I think this might be a little bit too dangerous for it to be here. Let's everybody go. Uh, once you've experienced it once, it's, it's almost like a drug and you, you can't get enough. Unfortunately for all the junkies following them around the Midwest, tornadoes are actually really hard to find. We might think of them as giant, towering, swirling masses of destruction, but Bettis says most chasers miss their catch more often than not. Being on the ground, confined to a Midwestern road grid while the tornado is moving anywhere at once, that can be pretty confounding. A lot of the time, they can't quite get where they need to be. <laughs> You're like, well, I need to go that way, but there's nothing there but a cornfield for the next 10,000 acres. And so by the time you get there, the tornado is already gone. And I... And maybe in, in some sense, people think every single tornado is a giant, massive tornado, and you can see them, and they last for hours. The reality is most tornadoes are very small, weak tornadoes, and they last for less than a minute. Um, so you have to be Johnny on the spot, or you're not going to see it. So that's the game. Read the weather to put yourself in position, and then use the roads to stay close, but not too close. 
Because as you're chasing the tornado, sometimes the tornado starts to chase you. Holy shit. Go, baby, go! It's all sort of like a giant game of Pac-Man. And while you might think that this would be the exclusive room of scientists and professionals, every spring thousands of storm chasers descend on the southern states like big game hunters. They start in Texas and follow the prevailing winds up through Oklahoma, Kansas, and the Dakotas, a swath of land known as Tornado Alley. I mean, that's where you get some of the, uh, the biggest, baddest, nastiest, prettiest uh, tornadoes you ever see. Warning now issued for northern Osage County. Let's tour through the Dallas area. So County. Tornado warning just being issued for Scott and Lane County. This tornado Alley produces an average of a thousand tornadoes a year. It's a phenomenon exclusive to the United States. The next closest country is Canada, with one-tenth that number. What makes this region so unique are three geological features that combine in just the right way. The Rocky Mountains, the Plains, and the Gulf of Mexico are all perfectly situated to create the giant spinning thunderclouds that you need to form tornadoes. First, you need what's called thermodynamic instability which happens when dry air descends from the Rockies and warms as it reaches the plains. As it warms, it rises, which sucks in wet air from the Gulf of Mexico. That wet air wants to rise too, but the dry air acts as a ceiling called the cap, and these two layers are fighting for who gets to be on top. The next thing we're looking for is um, shear. This is Ken Cole. He was the producer of the web series Tornado Chasers which follows a team of chasers as they hunt for storms. Shear, Ken says, is what happens when the dry air and the warm air move at drastically different speeds. You can think of it as kind of the spin of the atmosphere. The dry air is moving faster than the wet air. So as they scrape past each other, the wet air spins. Imagine pushing a rolling pin with the palm of your hand. Your hand is the layer of dry air, and the rolling pin is the wet layer. This spinning wet layer is what's called a horizontal vortex but it won't turn into a tornado until it goes vertical. On a hot day, the earth acts like a heat source, causing an updraft that eventually punches through the cap, pulling the horizontal vortex vertical, like the rolling pin standing on end. Now, this huge, spinning mass condenses as it rises and becomes what's called a mesocyclone, a giant, spinning thunderstorm. If you can imagine twisting uh, a rubber band and you keep on twisting each end in opposite directions, you can stretch it out and it's going to get tighter and tighter. As it tightens, it speeds up, and the tornado reaches down like the funnel of a whirlpool. But tornadoes appear in less than 30% of these mesocyclones, and no one knows why. But if you've read the storm correctly, you just might get lucky. This is unbelievable! So these are the clues tornado chasers are looking for. But they're not all hunting for exactly the same thing. Because of YouTube, TV shows, and improvements in storm tracking equipment, the storm chasing population has exploded. Many chasers are out just to make a buck, selling their videos or driving internet traffic by getting as up close and personal as possible. There's even tour groups, the extreme weather version of whale watching. 
a lot of people accuse storm chasers of you know wanting to be sensational wanting to get close getting the best video and i think there are chasers out there that do that um they enjoy the adrenaline rush they enjoy being close the show tornado chasers had a lot of sensational adrenaline inducing video but it wasn't just weather porn their custom vehicles were loaded with measurement tools designed to help scientists learn more about what makes tornadoes tick or turn i suppose and they weren't the only ones gathering data some chasers act as spotters, notifying warning agencies as soon as a tornado forms, like a forest fire lookout on wheels. Other chasers equip their vehicles with mobile Doppler, or deploy what are called stick nets, which are like little weather stations on tripods. I go out and I chase the biggest, baddest storms on the planet. This is Tim Samaris, giving a lecture to engineering company National Instruments. Samaris built and patented custom sensors that could withstand the forces of a tornado. He'd drop them in a tornado's path, and they'd get swept up, gathering valuable information about pressure and wind speed. Uh, hardened probes that are 20 inches in diameter, 6 inches high. The center instrument there actually has video cameras in it. Samaris quickly became one of the highest-profile faces of storm chasing. He and his team, Tactical Weather Instrumented Sampling and Tornadoes Experiment, or TWISTEX, worked with grants from the National Geographic Society and regularly appeared on the Discovery Channel's show Storm Chasers, not to be confused with Tornado Chasers. The ultimate goal for researchers like Samaris was not just to better understand the tornado, but also to better predict it. Here's Mike Bettis again. As of right now, you know, the average lead time on a tornado warning is about 13 minutes. The goal was to see if that number could go higher. Could, could we get it to 20 could we conceivably get it to 30 minutes and give people advance warning so they could, you know, protect themselves? It's a funny contradiction. Researchers want better predictions in order to help save lives. Yet those same predictions enable more chasers to accurately pinpoint where and when a tornado will strike. And with better predictions comes more confidence, a greater sense that nature can't surprise you. But as the spring began to warm Tornado Alley in 2013, the chasers learned just how false that sense of security could be. Oklahoma City is the most tornado-prone city in the world. Including its surrounding suburbs, it's been hit by tornadoes a staggering 100 times in the past century. But in the spring of 2013, the tornado season was looking like a dud. Well, we had a tornado drought. For the longest time, it didn't seem like we were going to get any tornadoes that year. Um, and then all of a sudden, things kicked up very quickly. On May 16th, a long region of low-pressure air descended from the Rockies, plodding westward across the open plains. Two days later, it collided with a warm Gulf Stream, sprouting thunderstorms like mushrooms on a dead log. What followed was 67 confirmed tornadoes touching down throughout Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri. But it was Oklahoma that was hit the hardest. The rotation is localizing. It is large. You see the bullseye tornado signature right there. Tornadoes are classified by what is called the Enhanced Fujita Scale, or EF for short. Since it's so difficult to measure the power of a tornado directly, the EF scale looks instead at the amount of damage it causes. It's kind of like deciding how strong a boxer is by counting the number of bruises on his opponent. An EF0, the lowest rating, can knock down a tree, but not a building. An EF5, the highest rating, has speeds of 200 miles per hour and will level anything in its path. 
less than a tenth of 1% of all recorded tornadoes are EF5. Oklahoma City was hit by an EF4 on May 19th. Two people died. The next day, May 20th, in the suburbs of Moore, Oklahoma, an EF5 descended, leveling full city blocks, causing billions in damage, and killing 24 people. We really didn't have our eye on that storm. You know, we, we didn't think that it was going to be that far north. And so it was unexpected, and it was tragic, and, you know, it, it took the wind out of us. And that really changed the season for us. The Moore tornado highlighted one of the difficult truths of the storm chaser. That the thing they spend all their time hoping to see is a force that destroys anything it can reach, including lives. I still get a real kick out of watching these tornadoes and like, wow, this is so amazing, nature doing its craziness out there. But then I know people are getting hurt and properties getting damaged. So it's just, it's the weirdest thing. And that's Gabe Garfield, research meteorologist, veteran storm chaser, and host of the podcast series Behind the Storms. When criticized, chasers like Gabe will tell you that chasers play a critical role in tracking a tornado. The sooner we know it's touched down, the more time everyone else has to find shelter. By going out there, we can report these uh, storms before they you know, hit people's houses, and hopefully we can actually help to save lives. Also, chasers feel pretty confident that they know where the storm is going to go and how it's going to behave. There's a sense that they are in control. But less than two weeks later, on May 31st, just outside El Reno, Oklahoma, it became clear that they had just enough knowledge to get themselves in trouble. It was a day that was off the charts when it comes to atmospheric instability. Everything in the forecast pointed to a supercell forming, with the potential for a record-breaking tornado. But with the devastation of Moore still fresh in their minds, the storm chasers weren't even totally sure they wanted to be out there. A lot of us weren't happy, we weren't excited. We were almost sort of doing it out of duty to, to witness whatever nature would throw at us. Ken and his crew set out from Norman, just south of Oklahoma City, as did Gabe Garfield. Tim Samaris and his Twistex crew were heading down from Guthrie, about 30 miles north. Mike Bettis was northwest of the city, standing in a field outside the nearby town of Kingfisher, broadcasting for the Weather Channel pointing out thunderstorms and warning residents of severe weather. And as we get back in our vehicles and we wrap up our broadcast and we're getting ready to head south, we're now starting to hear these reports of golf ball-sized hail, tennis ball-sized hail, funnel cloud has formed, tornado has formed, large tornado near El Reno, and then half-mile-wide tornado near El Reno. And I remember distinctly thinking El Reno, El Reno, El Reno, gosh. It was just two years ago, 2011, there was an EF5 in El Reno. El Reno has about 18,000 people and sits about 30 miles due west of Oklahoma City. The 2011 tornado was a massive EF5, spinning with 200-mile-per-hour winds. It destroyed dozens of homes. An SUV was thrown nearly 800 yards, its body ripped from its frame. Even more crazy... A 20,000-pound oil tanker was tossed nearly a mile, left like a forgotten toy in the middle of a flattened field. Now, it looked like it was going to happen again. Tornadoes come in many forms, but the holy grail for chasers is the wedge. 
a tornado wider than it is tall. Oh my God, it's going to be a wedge. True wedge tornadoes are incredibly rare, but when they do happen, they often measure in the EF4 or 5 range. They tend to be hulking and ugly. And as Mike Bettis got close to El Reno, that's exactly what he saw forming. Guys, that's it. Right there. There's the tornado. We are just Massive tornado. I had never seen a tornado that big before. And it was an aquamarine color. Uh, and it was wider than it was tall. Big, massive wedge tornado. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that is a monster. Most tornadoes are scary, slightly alien things. But this, this was the mothership. Already a mile across, it was a tornado inside a tornado, wrapped in rain and debris, churning beneath a towering cyclone. Lightning flashed across it, creating an eerie, otherworldly glow. It screamed. And as if some terrifying creature hid within its center, smaller tornadoes lashed out from it like the tentacles of an octopus. For Ken Cole, seeing this tornado shook him in a way that no other had. This was probably the first time in my chasing experience that a storm just seemed different. Like, this tornado seemed different. Most of the time, I, I never really associate emotions with tornadoes. But this storm, it was a beast. It seemed to be, like, angry. I don't know. There was something hostile about it. Given the prevailing winds involved, tornadoes usually track from the southwest to northeast, up and to the right on the map. And since the safest way to chase a storm is to follow behind it, chasers had gathered to the south of the mesocyclone as it was forming. But the tornado came right at them. Gabe Garfield, the podcast host we heard from earlier, was one of those chasers. He had pulled over to watch the tornado and was standing, transfixed, when his chase partner pulled him back into the car. And my buddy Tim said, hey man, you see all those white lights coming towards us? I said, yeah, looking to the west, you could see all these headlights coming toward us. Those are, those are storm chasers, and they're going to cut off our escape route. We need to leave now. As many as 300 chasers had descended upon El Reno, and many of them were racing right at Gabe. It's called chaser convergence, and it's a real problem. Chasers swarm onto small country roads, making traffic and impeding emergency vehicles. Gabe decided to get out of there before he got stuck. But as they fled, the tornado did something no one could have predicted. In just a few minutes, it doubled in size. And it literally took up the entire sky. I mean, literally. And then it sped up. I mean, we were going 50 or 60 miles per hour on this dirt road. I'm like, how are we not getting away from this thing? Then, even though they were escaping to avoid being pinned by a traffic jam, they got pinned by a traffic jam. The southbound lane, the lane that we're going in, trying to get away from this tornado, is blocked by a police officer, a highway patrolman, who thinks he's doing you know, the world a favor by blocking the road leading to the tornado, but he's actually blocking the road away from the tornado. And so I was just panicking at that point. They were stuck, and the tornado, over two miles wide, was barreling right at them at 60 miles an hour. There's, there's, it's something wild to actually feel like this thing is, like, trying to kill you. I mean, it felt like that. It was like, are you kidding me? I had never chased a tornado like that, that it felt like it was actually trying to kill me. And then it was gone. 
The tornado was less than a mile from them, when, without warning, it reversed direction and turned north towards Tim Samaris's Twistex crew and the Weather Channel's Mike Bettis. And our uh, vehicle in front, and our engineer KP, is there, and I see him go over into the right-hand lane. And I remember thinking to myself, why is he changing lanes? Why is he going to the right-hand lane? Because the tornado is just off to our right, and then he just keeps going right into the ditch. And that's when it really dawned on me what was happening. He actually wasn't changing lanes. The tornado's inflow was sucking him in to the tornado. Hold on, brothers. Hold on. I saw multiple vortices spinning within the parent tornado. It just was like little pieces of dancing spaghetti coming down from the clouds. And I knew there was very little we could do at that point to escape. Everybody jump, go, go, go. Just keep going if you can. Keep going if you can. Everybody jump down. Everybody jump down. It was just like a giant sledgehammer hit the side of your vehicle. And mind you, we're driving in a vehicle with all its equipment and the people in it, and and this vehicle weighs probably close to 10,000 pounds. Mike wasn't hit by the main tornado, but instead by one of its sub-vortices, those little tentacles arcing out from the main storm. Though much smaller and short-lived, these tornadoes are incredibly powerful, spinning at nearly 300 miles per hour. These tiny vortices are often the reason why one house can be decimated, but the one right next to it won't lose a chip of paint. The truck just behind them was untouched, but Mike was airborne. And time literally stood still for me. I felt this weightlessness, and I remember having this thought of wow, you know, like we're up in this tornado. And, well, we haven't hit anything yet, and I don't feel anything. We must be way up in the tornado. We're hundreds of feet off the ground. And the moment this car comes back down, that's the moment I'm going to die. There was another part of me that thought, well, maybe I'm already dead. Maybe this is what it feels like to ascend to heaven. And I'm going up to meet my maker at this point. And when that thought was happening, I had this vision. I saw my wife's face. And it was just kind of this angelic portrait, if you will. She was saying goodbye to me. And I saw the most important person in my life as I left this earth. Mike's vehicle was thrown over the median, across the northbound lanes, and into an adjacent field about 200 yards away. Oh, no. That is bad damage. We went down a road, and we saw that an SUV had flipped. I think that's a Channel 9 vehicle. It was crushed in the field. Are they okay? I don't know. We ran up and talked to him. 
uh, he was just retelling his story, and he was still in shock, and he was bleeding. Dude, that's yeah. the scariest 200-yard ride of my life. Yeah, I believe that it. was. I thought it was. I, my life left. I'm not that the, that was that was the first time I had ever seen, personally, a chaser of any form be injured or have their vehicle thrown like that. We kind of thought that that was kind of the big, the big story, the big. You know, the major crisis was averted. Everyone was, everyone walked away. That was it. But that wasn't it. The effects of this tornado would linger for every chaser that was there. Ten miles away from the tornado, Gabe Garfield stopped his vehicle and got out. He was unable to look away. In the Bible, it talks about Lot's wife turning around to see Sodom and Gomorrah and fire and smoke, and then she turns into a pillar of salt. I mean, I kind of felt like that was my pillar of salt moment. You know, I knew all this craziness was going on behind me, and I stopped one time to look and see what was going on. And it was just because I felt like, I guess, duty-driven to actually see the thing through. As the tornado reached its northernmost point, it paused, hovering just miles from the neighborhoods of El Reno, as if pondering whether or not to invade. For just a moment, it made toward the town. Then it turned, one last time, and headed out into farmland. At 6.43 p.m., the largest tornado in human history dissipated. Mike and his crew went to the hospital to get bandaged up. Ken, the producer of Tornado Chasers, went home to review his footage. They were shell-shocked, still processing an unforgettable day, thankful that no one had been more seriously injured. I was actually in a hotel room, so it was well past midnight at this point, and I see a tweet that says, Hearing reports of famous chaser has been killed by the El Reno tornado. Sometime around midnight or one in the morning, there were rumors on social media that something bad had happened, that, that someone, like a high-profile storm-chasing team, didn't make it back, that, it, that, um, that they had been potentially killed. The news didn't, didn't really come out until the next day that it was Tim Samaras and his, and his son and his, his chase partner, Carl. And my heart just sunk. Tim Samaras was traveling with his son, Paul, and another Twist X member, Carl Young. Their plan was to drop probes in front of the tornado. But as it did with all the chasers, the storm took them by surprise. The tornado had been riding the edge of the mesocyclone like an asteroid caught in a gravitational pull, accelerating as it swung back north. The sudden turn that saved Gabe's life put the tornado right at their feet. They reached out a tendril, paused over their vehicle, and grabbed them. It picked up their vehicle, it slammed it on its backside and traveled along with that subvortex. Uh, I believe it was a half mile to the east, so yeah, killing all three of them. The May 31 El Reno tornado ultimately took eight lives. Tim and his crew, another chaser, Richard Henderson, and four locals who were fleeing the tornado. Flash flooding from the parent storm took another 13 people. Despite being the largest tornado in recorded history, it caused relatively little property damage and was initially only rated an EF3. After radar confirmed speeds of 295 miles per hour, the second fastest ever recorded, it was upgraded to an EF-5. 
Had his path been just three miles to the northwest, it would have completely leveled the town of El Reno. And for the Chase community, this tornado blew away any sense of security they once had. It was the first time they had lost one of their own. And particularly scary was that it had been one of their brightest, most respected members. I think people always assumed that if something like that were to happen, it would be to a novice chaser, say one of these you know, younger chasers who were coming in and maybe don't have as much meteorological background or understanding of you know what's, what's happening in the atmosphere. But, I mean, there was no denying it. I mean, Tim and Carl and Paul, they, they knew what they were doing. Uh, they were very good at it, and they really respected nature. And so it was one of those things that just didn't compute. We all tell ourselves stories about how the world is a safe place to be and to live. We give ourselves reasons while we'll survive whatever risks we're about to take and cling to the internal logic of those stories because they help us exist in the world. When that thinking fails, when something disrupts the idea that we are basically safe most of the time, that's trauma. For a long time after that, I had, I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night, cold sweats. I'd have nightmares um, almost every night. And usually the ending was somehow me dying. You know, imagine having a, a nightmare every night where you die, and I was having that frequently. One of the things that makes a trauma stick with a survivor is how powerless they felt in that situation. For a chaser who thought he knew the weather, thought he knew how a tornado would behave, it's hard to think of a more powerless moment than one that defies your understanding and then shows you how helpless you are in its path. I would say it was probably a little bit more than a year after the tornado that I finally felt like I had put it behind me. Uh, and that, that moment was when I'm at the doctor with my wife, and she was pregnant at the time. We find out we're going to have a little boy, and I think that moment, my life changed. And I think that was probably the point where I thought, okay, now I've got this thing licked, and it became more or less an asterisk in my life than a moment that controlled me. We want to think that knowing and understanding the weather is to cage it in some way. We want to feel like we can get as close to a tornado as to a lion in the zoo and be in no greater danger. But the fact is, when it comes to tornadoes, we're not done being hunted. Not only did Samaris's death cause some soul-searching among chasers, it launched an outcry of criticism from outside their community. Here was proof that what chasers were doing was dangerous and irresponsible. And unless chasers stopped converging on these tornado-prone country roads, more chasers, or worse, innocent locals, would become victims. And while the storm-chasing community in general doesn't seem to be diminishing, many of those who were at El Reno formed a new, more cautionary outlook on chasing. For Ken, El Reno caused him to question his knowledge. How vulnerable am I, or you know, how dangerous is this activity? I thought I understood how the atmosphere worked, but maybe, maybe I don't at all. For Gabe, El Reno was a lesson in humility. After the El Reno tornado, I realized that it could get me. You know, it almost got me. Most of the people who had crazy experiences at El Reno like I did, uh, they don't do it anymore. Ever since El Reno, 
The chasers I talked to told me they don't need to get so close to the storm. It's not really about the thrill anymore, they said. It's about heading out with a couple of buddies to talk about life, eat cheap gas station food, take in the countryside. When weather reports show a low pressure front dropping in from the north and the thunderclouds start sprouting, they still feel that pull and want to go find that storm and witness the power of Mother Nature in action. But there's another thought now, a question of whether it's worth it to get absolutely as close as possible. If this storm is anything like El Reno, they think, they'll probably be able to see it fine from here. That's Robbie Carver. He wrote and produced and did the music and sound design on this piece. It was edited by me, Peter Frickrit. Thanks to Ken Cole for footage from Tornado Chasers. You can find more episodes at tvnweather.com. Stephen Barabbas of mesostorm.net let us use other audio from El Reno. Grayson Schaefer wrote a piece about this same tornado for Outside back in 2013. It's called When the Luck Ran Out in El Reno, and it is very much worth your time if you want to know more about this storm. This episode was made possible by the North Face and its new waterproof jacket, the Apex Flex GTX. It's an ultra-soft and impossibly dry Gore-Tex softshell. And unlike the El Reno tornado, it makes bad weather seem much more manageable and fun, instead of scary and dangerous. It's amazing. Speaking of amazing, we should tell you about our friends over at How to Be Amazing with Michael Ian Black. It's a podcast where Michael sits down with some of today's most provocative writers, entertainers, artists, innovative thinkers, and politicians for humorous, thought-provoking conversations. People like Amy Schumer, Ira Glass, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And they go deep into their creative process, sharing their stories of success and failure, giving out advice, and just generally having a good time. Check out the show every other week on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or at howtobeamazingshow.com. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance in tornadoes. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.